Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for taking the time to, to dial in and join us today. Firstly, I hope this finds you all safe and well. Welcome to the St. James's Place Fund Manager Insights webinar. My name is Joel Carpenter, Director of Marketing for St. James's Place Asia. I'm delighted to be hosting you um, all this afternoon. I'm aware that we've got a large number of you joining from across Asia today. So thanks for taking the time to, to dial in. St. James's Place, we host a number of these events to provide you, our value clients, with insights from our team of SJP investment experts and some of the leading fund managers who manage money on behalf of St. James's Place and our clients. Today, I'm delighted to be, to be joined and share with you the insights of two, two hugely experienced individuals, Intai Brasada, founding partner, president, and co-CEO of Edgepoint Investment Group, portfolio manager for Edgepoint's global equity strategy, and co-manager of the St. James's Place Global Equity Fund. Together with Chris Ralph, the chief global strategist for St. James's Place, a prominent figure in the media, and someone who personally I've had the privilege and the fortune to work with and speak with on, on a numerous occasions. So I'm delighted that Chris is here to join with us, join us today. Now you will notice that there is in fact just one gentleman accompanying me on the screen today, which is Chris. Good morning, Chris. I hope um, morning, this finds you well this morning. Yeah, Great. very good, thank you. And um, ladies and gentlemen, the reason for this is that as part of the investment management approach, we select those that we believe are individuals which are the best within their fields from across the globe to manage money on behalf of our clients. And Ty and his team at Edgepoint happen to be based in Toronto. Now Toronto is a 12 hour time difference. So rather than getting Ty to join us at 3 a.m. in the morning, I had a conversation with Ty just a couple of evenings ago, and we're gonna be sharing with that, that with you in a minute. But Chris, before we do so, um, as a member of the St. James's Place Investment Committee, and um, as somebody that throughout their extensive career with St. James's Place has played an integral role in the evolution of the SJP investment management approach, you know Ty and the team well. By way of introduction, before we listen to the interview, could you just share with us some insights that you think the audience should be aware of? Yes, I'd be delighted to, Joel, and, and thanks very much for the invitation to join you today and, and be with all of your guests. Um, I think uh, Ty and the team at Edgepoint typify the type of fund manager that we like working with at St. James's Place. They're very thoughtful, they're very considered, they're very long-term orientated, uh, and you can hear that in the responses to your questions. They don't want to be swayed by short-term market movements and be distracted from their from their long-term investment thinking they're very data-driven they think a lot about the uh the the models that they build for the companies that they're investing in to make sure they can make uh, great decisions and the other thing that came through when uh, i was listening to the interview that you did with him joel was the two or three times that he was very kind enough to mention how important it was uh, for clients to speak to their SJP partner. The fund managers can only do a certain job. Uh, they can drive the performance. It's what I like to call the engine uh, of our investment approach. But the link between our fund managers and our clients is provided by our partners. And I think uh, Ty speaks to that really, really well. And it's great to hear one of our fund managers talking about that as well. Great, thank you, Chris. Um, on that note, I'll ask you to drop your camera off ever so briefly. Um, like I will as well. And um, ladies and gentlemen, we'll now show you that discussion that I had with Retire a couple of days ago.
So Tai, um, thank you very much for, for taking the time to, to be with us this morning. Um, eight o'clock in the morning, you're dialing in from Toronto, I believe. Um, to begin with, um, could you just tell me a little bit about how you and your, the team at Edgepoint are doing and indeed how you've perhaps adapted to the crisis? Well, good evening to you, Joel, and thank you very much for uh, having, having me today. Um, as it relates to how we've uh, adjusted to the crisis, uh, I think we've adjusted quite well. We were very early in going to uh, a team concept at Edgepoint, meaning uh, a team A and team B concept, where team A was in the office one week and team B was in the office another week. And by very early, I mean we, we did that in February. And then what we did was uh, in March, we decided that uh, being in the office was no longer necessary. So uh, we've uh, essentially been working remotely since that time. Uh, with very few exceptions uh, on coming into the office. So, and remote work has been absolutely seamless, no issues at all, technology is fantastic, so we're able to get the job done. Great, that's, uh, that's great to hear, Ty. And um, I find it hard to believe that we're already halfway through 2020. Um, perhaps we could start just with some of your reflections on, on what's happened in the markets year to date. I think on a year-to-date basis, uh, as, as people have become a little bit more nervous, uh, given that the outlook is more cloudy given COVID, uh, what they tend to do is they tend to migrate towards what makes them feel comfortable. And if you think about what makes people feel comfortable today, they want to own the obvious safety names, the obvious low volatility safety names, and the obvious growers. And what we're seeing is a big herd um, mentality or rush into those areas. And because of that, we're seeing valuations in those particular areas. So the obvious growth names, and I'll give you an example, maybe a Netflix, for example, or an obvious safety name like a packaged goods company or a telecom company. Uh, those valuations on a, on a relative basis, relative to the rest of the market, are nearing all-time highs relative to the last seven years of data that we're looking at. So uh, we're, we're not finding very many opportunities in the obvious growers or the obvious safety names, uh, but there's a big polarity in the market. If you look elsewhere, you're able to find a number of opportunities where you're not being asked to pay for growth. Okay, and um, when looking at today's market, where do you see the greatest value tie? I don't think, um, what we tend to do is, is look at the market in general on a fundamental basis. So we're looking for individual ideas where we're not being asked to pay for growth. We're approaching each business as, as a business person would and say, am I able to buy growth today in the future and not pay for it? Uh, that's, that's where you're able to make returns. So it's very difficult for us to talk about the idea of finding a lot of value in a particular country or a particular sector because we are so fundamental and bottom up. So I could give you examples of businesses that we own and how we try to, and how they're very eclectic. We own a food ingredients company, for example, a freight forward or an auto parts distributor for do-it-yourselfers. We own a company that sells pumps and valves to uh, water utilities in the oil and gas industry. We own a skincare company. We own a company that makes ingredients that goes into PPP, PPE equipment, I'm sorry, like masks and gowns or Lysol wipes or then diapers. So it's very eclectic. And the eclectic nature is very much by design. And what we mean by that is, is we try to diversify the portfolio by business idea. We try to diversify it away from obvious correlations and non-obvious correlations. An obvious correlation would be, you know, having 50% of the portfolio invested in US banks, for example, 
anyone that casually looked at the portfolio would see that that's an obvious correlation. There's one big idea inside the portfolio and it's not diversified by business idea. The more difficult part is diversifying the portfolio away from non-obvious correlations. So uh, what that means is we have to ask ourselves questions that a business person would if they owned a collection of businesses to ensure that they were properly diversified. So for example, what would happen if the price of oil suddenly spiked? What businesses in our portfolio would be negatively impacted by that? What businesses would be positively impacted? What would happen if interest rates suddenly went up 100 basis points because inflation uh, started to rear its head, for example? What businesses would be positively impacted? What businesses would be negatively impacted? So what we've really tried to do is diversify the portfolio by business idea as much as possible. Uh, one common theme throughout the portfolio, though, is, is that you need uncertainty to invest. And um, I don't say that unsympathetically towards the end investor. I know the end investor really dislikes uncertainty, especially when it comes to downside volatility in the market, like we've seen over the last six months. But the reality is, is without uncertainty, if, if, if everyone were certain about the future, and um, then that would be already reflected in the stock market. And if that was reflected in the stock market and there was no uncertainty, then the average investor out there would earn the risk-free rate of return, which around the world today is probably somewhere less than 1% annually. So uh, the commonality about our investing is, is, there, is some, uh, uh, there is perceived uncertainty in, in uh, the opportunities that we see. And what gives us the opportunity to add value is having a view that's different than the market about these respective businesses. And it's that different view, what we call proprietary insight, that allows us to go and buy that growth inside that business in the future, but we buy that growth today for free. And that's what's led to uh, the, the performance historically for us. Thank you. Thank you, That's a um, really interesting answer. And one thing that, um, that stands out from your portfolio of, holding, of holdings at the moment is that you've got a relatively high allocation in Japan. Um, could you tell me a little bit about the, the reasons for that? Yeah, we, we never invest because we have a particularly positive view about a country. So I think that's important to highlight. So we're not, we're not in Japan because we have this big macro view that Japan is going to do well, for example. Uh, each one of these businesses was selected because of a fundamental bottom-up view. And let me walk you through a number of the larger holdings that we have in Japan, just very briefly, and explain how they're very eclectic in nature, and, and they're not really a Japanese per se, or the idea doesn't have to do with the domestic Japanese economy, if you will. So we own a skincare company that's likely going to double its margins over the next five years, in our view. We would own it whether their head office were in Tokyo, were in London, or were in New York City, or Toronto for that matter. And what's interesting is, is they generate more profit from outside the country of Japan than they do inside the country of Japan. So really, it's, it's not really a Japanese business as much in our mind as it is a global business. We also own an ag and construction equipment company. And this company is benefiting from less arable land around the world and fewer people to work that land. Um, and interestingly as well, this is a company that generates more profit from outside Japan than it does inside Japan. And again, we would own this business irrespective of where its head office where it was. It just happens to be located in the Japanese market. Um, we own a factory automation company. COVID-19 is increasing 
uh, the, the demand for factory automation, for example. And this business happens to be located in Japan, but they sell an enormous amount of equipment into the Chinese market, for example. So we would look at this business and say, again, we don't really care that it's, a, it's classified as a Japanese business or, or trades on a Japanese exchange, where the opportunity really is, is in that the fundamentals of the underlying business. And lastly, we own a biotech company that, 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 that's a leader in many areas of, of, um, of their respective markets that they've chosen to be in, one of which is, is uh, HIV cocktails, for example. And they sell their product all around the world. And again, we don't care that their head office is in Tokyo. Uh, all we care about is the fundamentals of the underlying business. So I think it's very important to understand that we approach investing as a, as a business person would. If, if you were thinking about investing your family's future in a business, you would, you would ask yourself the question, you would ask about the fundamentals of the business and you'd likely care very little about where the head office happened to be, especially if the company that you're looking at generated the majority of its profits from countries outside of where the head office is. So I hope that answers the question, Joel. It does, thank you, Ty. And in a recent interview I was reading, um, you mentioned that you were concerned about the US equity market valuations. Um, those US holdings within your portfolio is the same reason that you just mentioned about the Japanese holdings, does that ring true? You know, um, it, it's very, uh, we, we try to shy away as much as possible from talking about broad valuations. And I guess in that interview, uh, the interviewer asked me, so I was forced to comment on it. But the reality is, is we tend not to have uh, big macro views about valuations because at the end of the day, we don't own the market. In our portfolio, we own a very small collection of businesses and that's what we care about. But as it relates to the US market, I, I'd like to go, uh, I'd like to answer your question by saying, one of the things that we're concerned about has to do with what we talked about earlier, where when there's a, a crisis in the market, and this crisis happens to be COVID related, people's investment horizons get very short and they do what makes them feel comfortable in the short term. And what's making people feel comfortable in the short term today is to buy those obvious growth names, a lot of which are in the United States. So FANGs are an example of that. Uh, Microsoft, FANGs plus Microsoft would be an example of that. Um, or they buy the obvious safety names. So those packaged goods companies, the telecom companies, the pharmaceutical companies. And because of that, what's happened broadly is, is the valuations of those obvious growth names and the valuations of the obvious safety names are, 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 are approaching uh, extreme highs relative to the rest of the market. And let me give you some more concrete data and uh, we could follow up with some uh, some of this data in chart form if you'd like later. But if you look at uh, the, the obvious growers and you look at the 1500 largest companies in the United States, and you look at the top quintile, the top 20% from the valuation perspective, and those are comprised of the, the higher growth names. And you look at their relative valuations to the market over the last century. So that top 20% relative to the market's valuation over the last century, only twice in the last century have they been more expensive relative to the market than they are today. It happened for a couple of weeks at the bottom of the market in 2009, and it happened back in the Great Depression. So said differently, 99.9% .9 of the time in the last century, those obvious growers, the household names that most people feel comfortable owning, uh, have been less expensive relative to the rest of the market than they are today. 
Likewise, for the obvious safety names, those low volatility companies will take Colgate as an example, as the, of a packaged goods company where everybody knows that no matter how bad COVID is for the rest of the year, in 2021, the same amount of people will be brushing their teeth as did in 2020, as did in 2019. So people feel comfortable owning that type of business model. If you look at those collection of low volatility names, low, you know, low share price volatility names because they're perceived as being safe businesses, and you look at their relative valuation relative to the last 70 years worth of data, so since the end of World War II, what you see is, is those valuations are at relative all-time highs, meaning in the last seven decades, they've never been more relatively expensive to the rest of the market than they are today. So uh, our concerns about, uh, about the market has more to do with what people are naturally reacting to. They're, they're doing the same thing they've done time and again, which is just uh, do what makes them feel comfortable in the short term, which has never ever in the history of investing been a good long-term strategy. But nonetheless, it's happening because of COVID today. Great. And um, another question I wanted to ask you about your portfolio. Um, you were holding quite a lot of cash when you came in, when we came into this crisis. Um, have you seen opportunities to deploy some of that? How has that, um, how has that changed and how have you and your colleagues been able to act upon any opportunities that you've seen? Joel, I, I don't remember a period of time where we've been more active in my life than in the last six months. So you're right, we did come in with a significant amount of cash in the portfolio. It was between eight and a half and nine percent. Uh, and we've been able to deploy a significant amount of that cash today. We, we sit with about four to four and a half percent cash in the, in the portfolio, number one. Uh, but that just makes you think that uh, we just deployed that amount of cash. What we've also done is, is we've exited ideas that have done both absolutely well or relatively well during this period of time and taken that cash and redeployed it as well. So we've had ideas that have gone up materially that we've either sold out of or trimmed, or we've had ideas that have held up better. And because of that, their weight started to creep up and their relative attractiveness started to go down to the rest of the portfolio. So we've taken weight out of them and put that money into uh, existing ideas or new ideas. If you look at the last 16 weeks or so, call it 18 weeks since COVID started, we've purchased 10 new ideas in the portfolio. And then a typical year, we only purchase six. So you could see that we've been very, very active. And these are ideas that we've been waiting for, for, you know, waiting in the weeds for to, 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 to buy. We've followed for, in nine out of the 10 cases, we've followed these businesses for over a decade, waiting for something in the short term to go wrong. And suddenly COVID was that something that allowed us to capitalize on the downside volatility in these businesses and buy the future growth inside of them for free. Uh, as a business person would, right? If you suddenly got offered, the business of your dreams that you've been waiting around for for a long period of time for the valuation to pull in. And then something happened that you don't think impacts the long-term opportunity of the business, but impacts the seller's desire to sell the business and thus reduces the price that that seller wants for it. You as a rational business owner would capitalize on that as we have over the last call it 16 to 18 weeks across those 10 ideas. So we've, uh, we've been excited by the opportunities that we've seen and we've capitalized on. Great, thank you, Ty. And um, my final question to you is, um, and you've mentioned it yourself, you know, the COVID-19 crisis has really been an emotional roller coaster for a lot of investors. Um, do you have any guidance, any parting comments that you wanna pass on to, to, to those investors? It would be, uh, it would be that you, you really have to think about the fact that 
um, you're at point A today as an investor, present day, and you're trying to get yourself to point B. Now everyone's point B is going to be different. Some people are saving for education. Some people are saving for a, a larger home, for example, or some people or most people are saving for retirement. So let's call point B retirement. Um, and what tends to happen is, is most people make decisions about getting to point B about how they feel around point A. So it's their emotions around point A that dictate the decisions that result or that, that, that help them get to point B. But the reality is, is making decisions around point A about getting to point B has never proven to be a good strategy uh, emotionally. Um, so for that reason, uh, I think that, that the best advice I can say is, is try and remember that and, and try and find as you have a, a good SJP partner that can help you navigate these markets emotionally. Uh, they're skilled at helping you navigate these markets and manage those emotions. And let me, if you don't mind, Joel, I'm just going to give you, I, 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 I'm 49 years old. I'd love to give you 50 years worth of history in less than two minutes of people constantly doing what makes them feel comfortable in the short term, which consistently leads to underperformance in the long term. So decisions made around point A about making them feel comfortable lead to them getting to point B and, you know, under a worst case, running out of money before they die. So, and I'll try and do this in two minutes. So when I was born, I was born in the early, very early 1970s. And in, in the early 1970s, it was all about the nifty 50 in North America. And I remember that. And I'm sorry about the, the background noise here, Joel. There seems to be a, a fire going on outside. Um, I'm just going to pause here for a quick second uh, as they go by. I'm sorry about that. They seem to have made no their problem. way past them. So back to the 1970s, it was all about the nifty 50. And what ended up happening was, was people just wanted to buy those businesses because the share prices were going up and it made them feel comfortable. They were investing in line with consensus. And what ended up happening was because it made them feel comfortable, they did it. But if you look, past, if you look forward a decade, that investment decision led to permanent loss of capital because those nifty 50 businesses subsequently underperformed. So you're going to learn your lesson, you would imagine, from something like that, right? Don't let emotions dictate your long-term investment decisions. But let's go to the mid-1970s, and this is where I'm starting to remember what was going on now. I'm six or seven years old, and the leader of the free world at the time, Jimmy Carter, goes on television and says, my fellow Americans, wear sweaters this winter and turn down your thermostats because in a few years we're going to run out of oil. So the world was in the middle of an oil crisis and the prices of oil skyrocketed. My parents had four sons to care for, so they buried a tank of oil in their backyard to ensure we had enough heating oil to, to heat our home. 25 years later, it cost them more money to pull that tank out of the ground than the oil inside was worth. Permanent loss of capital, their only mistake investing in line with consensus. The 70s were a bad decade for investing. I'm going to learn my lesson. It's the 80s now. And you come into the 80s, and this time it's different. It's a country. It's not a commodity like oil, or it's not a group of companies like the Nifty 50. And what happens is, is people feel very comfortable buying this particular country, which was Japan. The Japanese are going to teach the rest of the world how to manufacture everything from, uh, from automobiles to machines, and everyone was going to buy Japanese TVs and Walkmans at the time. Had you invested in Japan at that time and done what was comfortable, you experienced permanent loss of capital, where 30 years later and you still haven't made your money back. Again, you need someone there to help you, guide you through the emotions. 
70s and 80s, bad experiences. I'm going to learn from it. 90s. All you have to do is like buy emerging markets because emerging markets always grow faster than developed markets. And what ends up happening is, is it's 93, 94, excuse me, 94, 95, peso tequila crisis, Mexico implodes. 95 through 98, everything from Russia to Southeast Asia implodes. Permanent loss of capital number four or five. Again, you are doing what made you feel comfortable at the time, um, as opposed to uh, thinking about long-term investing as a rational business person does. And then you walk right into the internet, right? And you look at the internet and you say to yourself, the internet's going to change the world. And there's going to be lots of growth ahead for decades. And I just have to buy into these dot-coms. And everyone knows how that ended. And that was another permanent loss of capital. Fast forward five or six years and the Federal Reserve in the United States, Greenspan goes on television and says, America, you have nothing to worry, worry about. The average home price in the United States never goes down. And that, you know, what happened two or three years later. Again, you have to avoid doing what makes you feel comfortable. And, and really the best advice I have is, is listen to your SJP partner. And you listen to your SJP advisor when they're giving you advice because they've seen these things happen in the past. And they, they, they know how to navigate them emotionally. And they firmly focus on your point B and excluding emotions around point A. So as far as advice goes, that's, that's the best that I have. John, that was um, fantastic advice. And uh, I really appreciate your, your time this morning, as I know all our, our listeners um, will too. So um, thank you very much, Sai. Thank you, Joel. And I hope you have a good evening. I will. Thank you. Thank you very much. I know you'll be listening to a recording of this, so I want to place on the record how much we do appreciate it. And uh, ladies and gentlemen, apologies, I know a couple of you did have um, some sound issues, so thank you for bearing with us there too. Chris, welcome back. Um, Chris, given the oversight of the approach, your oversight of the approach of Ty and his team at Edgepoint, um, and the, invita the, invita the information sorry, that he shared with us about looking for opportunities, what stood out, what stands out to you the most about Ty's portfolio of holdings and indeed their approach? Yeah, there was uh, two or three things that really stood out to me, uh, Joel, in that uh, really fascinating, illuminating interview with, uh, with Ty. I think it's one that uh, one could watch uh, two or three times and still gain insight from it. I think the first thing that um, he said very specifically, you asked him a question about Japan. He said he very specifically doesn't invest in countries. And we see this with our portfolio managers. They don't want to take country bets, as it were. What they're finding, what they want to find is good quality company opportunities uh, that they can invest in. And if they happen to be domiciled in Japan or in Europe or the US or wherever, it doesn't really matter. Um, but what they are finding is good value high quality, uh, well-managed businesses in Japan, and they're taking advantage of that. So I thought that came across as quite striking. Um, he also talked about trying to find opportunities in the non-obvious names and thinking about diversifying away from um, what he described as non-obvious correlations. So it's trying to think out of the box. It's trying to be different from the consensus. That lovely, uh, that lovely um, illustration that he used in his slightly longer than two minute wrap up of uh, history, including the fire engine. Um, but the, 
um, the idea of his parents building a, um, a big hole in the back garden to put an oil tank in and then finding it costs more to take it out than uh, it would to fill it with oil. So uh, it, it's trying to think away from the consensus, trying to be different from what's going on uh, in the broader marketplace. And that's where they're going to make the most money for our clients. And Chris, I know that you also recently had a conversation with, with Ty that I listened to, um, and he's talked a lot about investing in great business ideas, was I think the, the, the phrase that he used. And this concept sounds relatively simple, but um, in reality, it must be incredibly more difficult to execute. So from what you know of Ty and his team, how do they go about it? Yeah, well, again, there was a couple of nuggets that came out in the interview. Um, they wanted to buy growth today and not pay for it, was one of the phrases that he used. So he's looking for businesses that have really good growth opportunities that haven't been recognized by the broader marketplace, or perhaps the share price has been hit for um, unrelated issues like COVID-19 or something like that. Uh, and they also try to think about the companies they own as a businessman would rather than just as a an idea a bet in a portfolio and that evidences their long-term um, investment thinking so how do i go about doing that uh, it's really deep dive forensic research on the companies that they're investing so typically it's not just a meeting with you know the ceo or finance director of, of a business it's meeting other people in the organization the line managers for the individual business line but it's also meeting the suppliers to the company it's meeting the clients of the company it's talking to their competitors i've, I've heard many fund managers and, and ty would typify this who say some of their best ideas come from competitors who say well xyz who runs um, ABC PLC uh, is that's a really good company and, and that's providing us with a competitive threat that might be a really good investment idea so that sort of thing I think is is um, a way for them to find uh, find really really good ideas um, and and uh, what what I think we try and look at is, is trying to think about uh, the way in which we can have conversations with our fund managers so we are well, well prepared in the way that you prepared for your interview with with Ty and similarly he and his colleagues at point will think very carefully will prepare um, very substantially for all of their engagements with the companies that they go and see so it's not just the company telling them the story that they want to tell it's Ty and his colleagues managing that conversation to make sure they can get the maximum value out of the time that they spend with those with those companies. And that's why we find investors like Ty um, deliver what we think are superb returns for our clients because they are looking for things that are different. Thank you, Chris. And Dan, Ty talks about that natural response to a crisis being a shift to a more short term perspective in terms of investor sentiment. Is this something that you also see through your interactions with, with, with clients, the media? Um, and how can we help clients rebalance that in what is clearly a difficult time emotionally? Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, there's a lot in that question. And, and, and it comes back to the, the, um, the sort of slightly disarming comment that, that Ty made, that he prefers uncertainty as it creates a good opportunity to invest. And you might sort of think, well, that's sort of almost counterintuitive. But when there is uncertainty, share prices tend to, to react in ways that are not necessarily associated with the underlying 
qualities, capabilities, um, and therefore valuations of those companies. And that's where they can find really, really good investment opportunities. Um, and thereby differentiate themselves from the shorter term knee-jerk reaction to those short-term considerations and think about the longer-term opportunity. But as your question alluded to, uh, Joel, there is also the behavioural aspect of this. Now, we know from behavioural analysis, from, from reading any of the big behavioural scientists, that they say that loss aversion is, is one of the key areas of concern for individuals generally and certainly for investors. There's some evidence that suggests that, suggests that people are, are twice, are more than twice more worried about making a loss as making a gain. And when share prices are on their knees because of uh, a, a, a crisis like the COVID-19 crisis, uh, that can create a behaviour in those investors that is not rational or is not objective uh, and is subject to those behavioural biases. Now, that's not a criticism um, because it's a factor. It's a fact of life. It's a it's a challenge that we all face when we're trying to invest objectively, and it's really difficult to do so when um, uh, when markets are are very volatile. But that's where all the work that Tyne uh, and his team at Edgepoint do in terms of understanding the organisation, uh, the, the companies they're investing, thinking about where they want to find values. He talked about stocks being in the weeds for years. He talked about knowing companies for 10 years before he invests in them. So he knows the price point that he wants to get into. And when markets move, he can take advantage of that. Indeed, Chris, I found that really interesting uh, when he was talking about deploying capital. And he speaks about not just, he's talked about not just sitting on or, or investing the cash that they were already sitting on, but also where they'd felt that they perhaps maximized the value in certain opportunities and redeployed capital to look at other opportunities, as you say, where they've been waiting in the weeds for up to 10 years, looking for the right time to invest in those. Um, in terms of being able to act in that forward thinking manner, what kind of shape does your portfolio have to be in coming into a crisis like this for them to be able to take advantage of those opportunities? Yeah, well, it, it, there are different ways of, of doing this. Um, and the model that Ty and the Edgepoint team pursue is, is, is a very successful model, but different fund managers have slightly different approaches to this. Uh, so if I was talking to, say, Hamish Douglas at Magellan, who manages our international equity fund, um, he has sort of buckets of holdings that he thinks about and then holds some liquidity against that. And, you know, that's a process that works very well for him. But again, a couple of things that Ty said in the conversation that I thought were very helpful. Uh, firstly, that he needs to think about investment in, in areas where the growth is going to be rather than where it has been. So again, it's that forward-looking long-term view that, 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 he's, uh, that, he's do, uh, that he's thinking about. Um, and he talked a bit about the indiscriminate nature of the way in which the market moves, that it can have some knee-jerk reactions to, to different events. And whilst that may, may, um, uh, may harm in terms of the price movement of, of shares in, in companies that he owns in his portfolio, that doesn't necessarily, it can do, but it doesn't necessarily change the underlying qualities of the business model. So what we like to see in our fund managers is, is if they say, this is a great business. This is fundamentally unchanged by what's happening in the marketplace, but the share price has dropped by 10, 15, 20, 30 percent. 
I'm actually going to add more to my portfolio today um, because that's a good opportunity for me to be um, buying in more cheaply because markets have moved. And that's exactly what we want to, to be seeing um, from our fund managers. But it does depend on having this very consistently uh, applied investment philosophy and process that allows them to stick to their, I suppose, stick to their knitting and, and keep doing what they're good at doing. Great. Thank you, Chris. And um, a final question and pertaining to, to Ty's fantastic two minute or so um, history lesson that he gave me the other evening. Um, what were the key couple of points that you um, that you took from that? Yeah, there, there, there were sort of two or, things, two or three things, I, I suppose. Again, it comes back to what we were talking about earlier, the volatility in markets and, and the idea of thinking about uh, yourself wanting to be in point A, at point B when you're actually at point A um, and being buffeted by all the noise and troubles going around, uh, along around you. And, uh, and he's very cognizant of that and tries to, be, um, tries to be very thoughtful about how he approaches that. He also said um, that uh, there was that he couldn't remember a time when they had been more active as a fund manager than than over this period, um, and it, it's making sure that um, they're not uh, rabbit they're not adopting a rabbit and headlights mentality. Markets are moving very quickly. They want to sit in their hands because they're too scared to do anything. They've got to take advantage of these opportunities when they see them uh, when they see them emerging. And then going back to what I just said a few moments ago, the the reason that they can do that is because they've done all this research. And then in, in uh, the companies that they've added to the portfolio, I think he said that in nine out of the ten cases, they've been businesses that they've followed for more than ten years. So they they've had lots and lots of contact with the management they understand the business it's not they're just ringing up the ceo because the share price has fallen 20 percent and saying well this might be a good idea they know the business in depth and that really allows them to make a a more confident a more considered more balanced judgment about adding that idea into the portfolio great thank you chris chris really appreciate your insights um throughout the discussion there's been a number of of questions coming in Questions pertaining to both the portfolio manage pro management process and what you shared and indeed what Ty shared, but also some more macro questions, which I'll also um, take, would also like to ask you, given um, you know, I've spent a lot of time reading your, or sorry, listening to your, your market overviews and indeed your podcasts, which people can be found in your social media or on LinkedIn as an example, if they want to follow Chris Ralph. Um, but let's start with some of the portfolio questions first. And um, uh, in terms of somebody who was, and this is an interesting question, somebody who is perhaps in a less aggressive type of portfolio um, at this time, if they have a three to five year time horizon, is this the time when they should be considering a more aggressive or adventurous approach? Well, I was worried about that because um, that suggests um, shorter term market timing is being brought to bear. Uh, I, I think working for clients working with an SJP partner allows one to be sort of really, really focused on this long-term objective, the long-term outcome that our clients are trying to realise. And, and if if one is a more sort of medium or low to medium risk client, um, trying to time markets in the shorter term and say, well, it may be a good time to invest today, uh, may may not um, aid the realisation of that, that long-term outcome. Because, uh, and maybe this is a preempting a question that, that, that you may ask me, but you know, markets have recovered very substantially from the March 23rd lows. 
particularly in uh, the United States and particularly in the technology names in the United States. And we've obviously seen recent very strong performance from the Chinese market. Now, uh, you know, you wouldn't be able to uh, uh, you wouldn't be able to get me to pin down a, a number as to where the uh, the Shanghai index will finish at the end of the year or the S&P will finish at the end of the year. But it wouldn't surprise me at all if we see some lumps and bumps along the way over the next six month period. So trying to time the market in any short term um, uh, in any short term way may may not be uh, right for our clients. And actually, if you've got a long term um, view of what your your uh, your what your association is with risk, how you think about, uh, you want your, your portfolio to be invested in the diversification that's associated with that, then actually through good times and through less good times, one should stick with that. Thank you, Chris. And um, the approach that Ty's, um, Ty's talked to you about or indeed that he's disclosed, uh, is that characteristic of our active fund managers and how they've approached the year to date? And the second part to that question that came in also, you and the investment committee, how are you ensuring that you have oversight of that of that behavior? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, as I said earlier, uh, investment approaches are different from, from different fund managers. Um, what we try and do is have different types of approaches within our equity managers, within our fixed income managers, and with our within our alternative managers, because what we don't want is for to have all of our eggs in one investment style basket as it were so that if the market performs in a particular way that could either be really good for us or really bad for us so we have different types of input but i would say there are some underlying characteristics um we we don't like we don't tend to like fund managers who have very very high trading activity so we don't go we don't tend to um put our clients money with um high frequency algorithmic traders we don't. Uh, we tend to, to like fund managers who are longer term, who are very, who undertake very deep, um, intensive, uh, underlying research. Not not just into the into the to the equities, but also into the fixed income um, holdings they may want in terms of the credit analysis they do. So very deep in in, in um, deep credit research as well. The other thing I think that would probably be true if one was to do an analysis across all of the all of the, the holdings that our fund managers have for our clients would be that they tend to go for businesses that on average are higher quality and on average are lower debt. So so I, I can't think of a fund manager that, that I speak to that likes companies that have really, really high levels of debt. Um, and as we've seen over the past three or four months, some of those companies a few of those have performed really well, um, but some of them have um, got into real trouble. Um, in terms of the work of the investment committee, again, that's a really good question to ask. So obviously we've been unable to meet face-to-face -face as we would ordinarily do. And indeed, I heard yesterday that we're not planning any face-to-face -face meetings for the rest of the year. So we've been spending quite a lot of time on, um, on Zoom, um, meeting as an investment committee, uh, interacting with members of our investment division, uh, the the investment consultants that we work with and our fund managers. So in terms of our ability to interrogate and analyze our fund managers, there's actually very little change from uh, from what we've done before. And and uh, uh, and I do think from a from a use of time perspective, uh, rather than uh, asking Ty to get on a plane and coming over to London 
and spending a day with our investment committee and then flying back to Toronto. Um, actually, we've all found that trying to interact with our fund managers um, from an investment committee perspective can be done um, uh, remotely through uh, through um, video conference call in a way that I think has um, accelerated over the past few months. Having said that, we still believe that there is quite considerable purpose in, in spending time um, going through the weeds, uh, trying to do deep dive research onto our fund managers. So we would still be asking our investment consultants or members of our investment team to spend an awful lot of time um, at the fund managers locations in future, even if they can't do it today, to make sure that they can uncover um, everything that's going on in the organization, points that we should be um, very comfortable with, um, but more important than the areas of concern. Thanks, Chris. That's um, that is really interesting. Now let's take a step back, and I will ask you a couple of the macro questions that have are coming in, that have been coming in. And indeed, you did predict one a couple of minutes ago. Um, I can't believe we're at the half year mark already. Um, and the first time that you and I spoke in one of these webinars was early March, um, so almost exactly a quarter ago. Could you give me an update of you know the markets over the last quarter, and indeed a possible recovery that we've been seeing? Yeah, I, I, markets continue to fascinate me, uh, and uh, I may have had the good fortune to be in markets for, for quite a long period of time, but this year has been just another amazingly fascinating year. Um, so if we go back to the middle of our uh, middle to the end of March, when um, when the news about coronavirus was at its most troubling um, and that infection cases were rising very substantially in Europe and the US, and it looked as though it was you know, quite difficult, going to be quite difficult to get them under control, even if China had been quite successful and the rest of Asia had been relatively uh, had been successful, particularly places like South Korea and Taiwan, um, in getting control of the virus. Um, and at that stage, uh, companies were putting out announcements saying the outlook for the rest of the year looks incredibly unclear. Um, and uh, and, it, and it's very difficult to see what um, profits, if any, they're going to be able to make in an environment where revenues are, are, are going to have a complete chasm for a quarter or possibly more. And at that point, we hadn't really seen the substance of the, not just the central bank, but the government stimuluses that, that have been provided. And since the end of March, we've seen this extraordinary, the word unprecedented has been used an awful lot, um, over the past six months. Uh, we've seen unprecedented support from governments and central banks that have provided an underpin to markets and allowed it to recover, or allowed them to recover. And at the same time, there's been growing positive news about the possibilities of develop, developing vaccines. Uh, there's some news overnight about um, a test that a, a US business called Moderna had done um, that uh, shows reasonably high efficacy, um, but actually some worrying side effects. Uh, there's some quite good, there's quite good progress um, that uh, a team at Oxford University uh, have been making in terms of developing a vaccine. Uh, and all of the um, the FDA, the, uh, the Food and Drug Administration uh, in the US and, and other regulatory bodies around the world are going to accelerate the ability to approve these these drugs so that we can have a vaccine sooner rather than later. So all of that is encouraging markets and allowing them to look forward through 2020 to 2021, which is why, despite the fact that we've seen 
very substantial economic shocks in uh, the UK, in the US, in Europe, to a lesser extent in, 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 China, in China and Asia. We've certainly seen a very V-shaped, evidence of a V-shaped recovery in China. Um, actually, markets have moved ahead because they're looking forward to a really big bounce um, in, in 2021. Now, the fly in the ointments or the various flies in the ointments will be if, for example, the, the, the vaccine development is slowed down and, and uh, the vaccines are not as efficacious in the in the tests that are undertaken as, as the initial expectations might, might, might be that they should be. If we get second waves going through uh, the UK, the chief scientific officer in the UK uh, said uh, yesterday that he's trying to undertake a study to try and look at a winter escalation in infections. And I'm sure that's being done in other countries in Europe and, and in the United States. And then, of course, um, we've got the US election coming up at the end of the year, uh, and it's looking increasingly likely, if you look at what the betting marks are telling us, that um, we will have a Democratic president, uh, a Democratic Senate, and a Democratic House, a clean sweep for the Democrats. And that may allow an incumbent President Biden to introduce policies that might be slightly more challenging for for companies, so maybe higher corporate tax rates, maybe maybe more um, better provision for healthcare. Uh, and I'm not necessarily saying that that's not a good thing for US citizens, but that may have an impact on, on US corporate profitability. So again, I think the market will, if the COVID news continues to improve, I think the market will become more and more focused on the US elections as we head towards the end of the year. Great, thank you, Chris. And uh, our last question, a really nice question that's just come in um, that I'm going to ask you as, a, as some final remarks on about um, one school of thought. And you and I actually spoke about this one um, back in March about the impact of government stimulus. Um, so with government stimulus, with that stimulus having found its way into the markets, perhaps, perhaps um, beginning to, to dry up, so to speak, um, when and how could we see a, a true reflection of the markets post-COVID? Yeah, I mean, this is a really, really difficult question to answer because I think the the programs of quantitative easing of of, um, uh, of bond buying by the central banks are going to continue uh, for some period of time. We've seen an announcement from the Bank of Japan this morning. Um, uh, interest rates unchanged as expected, but continuing its quantitative easing programs. We've seen announcements from or suggestions of announcements from the US. We haven't actually seen an announcement about it yet um, about further government stimulus uh, and obviously um, in the UK and Europe uh, there's been the, the Merkel-Macron pact of 750 billion euros of stimulus and that's probably not going to be the last amount of stimulus in Europe so I think there's probably more to come. The, the challenge comes as we look forward and trying to understand how governments are going to uh, reduce the amount of debt that they've got um, now, whilst interest rates are incredibly low, we saw the 10-year yield in the US sort of flirt with 0.6%, 60 basis points um, last night. Uh, and in the UK, 10 years, 10-year uh, money is, is um, 15, 20 basis points. So very, very low rates. That makes funding costs relatively low. But if one of the impacts of all the stimulus is, is, is inflation, um, then that's going to make it much, it's likely to make it more costly for governments to be able to, to fund their deficits. Um, and in that case, uh, the necessity to raise money through, through taxes um, will, will, will rise. And obviously, going back to my previous point about 
uh, an incumbent Democratic um, president, it is much more likely that not just corporate taxes could raise could be raised in the US, but but also personal taxes. Um, and whilst that may be unpopular in the short term, um, that that will be a way in which countries will be able to sort of repair uh, and repay some of the debt that's been associated with this crisis. So it's really hard to give a you know a definite date of this is when in inverted commas we will we will normalise again because I think that could be quite some way ahead way ahead. Um, and there are a lot of unknowns along the way, a lot of hurdles that we. Uh, in terms of the global economy could trip up as we go along. Great. And um, so on that note, any final comments for, for indeed our clients, investors and our audience today? Well, thank you, Joe. Um, once again, thank you to everyone participating in the event today. Um, as Joe said, um, I do share uh, a lot of my thoughts on LinkedIn, so please feel free to, to link up with me. I put a regular weekly economic and market update uh, and also share uh, the interviews that we do uh, with our fund managers through through a podcast site so uh, yeah and that's available on apple and google podcasts so please do um uh, link in with me there um i think the other thing is going back to the comments that ty made um please do interact with your sjp partners they are definitely going to help you in your journey to realize the financial goals that that you want to realize and our experience over the 20 uh, 28 years of, of running SJP is that that is a way in which uh, we can maximize the possibility of clients realizing the investment outcomes that they want rather than as we have seen for um, unadvised uh, investors in the UK and the US um, being pushed around by the short-term market machinations. So really focus on a longer term, be diversified, and as we all say, try and work uh, as we're fortunate enough to do with the best fund managers that you can at St. James's Place. So thank you very much, Joe. Thank you, Chris. Ladies and gentlemen, that completes today's webinar. Thank you very much for, for your time today. Ty and Chris, thank you very much. Really appreciate you taking the time, Chris, to join us this morning. Um, your insights are always appreciated. Ladies and gentlemen, if you've got any further questions, please con con contact your St. James's Place partner. Please follow SJP Asia on LinkedIn or on Facebook to keep up to date with our market updates or indeed future events um, like this that we regular host. And um, lastly, I just hope that this finds everybody in our community safe, well and healthy. So, so thank you all. Good day. <laughs>